Episode 5, PSA with Dr. John Kowalczyk. Hi, and welcome to the Cancer from A to Z podcast, where we discuss the issues and topics related to a diagnosis of cancer. I'm your host, Dr. Rosalind Morell. These podcast episodes are intended for informational and educational purposes only and are not a substitute for medical treatment by a healthcare professional. They do not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. Please consult your doctor or other health professional with any questions you have regarding any medical conditions. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Cancer from A to Z podcast. So glad you could join me today because I'm really excited about the guest today, Dr. John Kowalczyk. I've known John for about 10 years, and we started working together right about the same time that I moved to Southern California. He is a board-certified urologist and founder of the Urology Group of Southern California, which he founded in 2001. He received his Doctor of Osteopathy in 1989, completed his residency in Chicago, and is fellowship trained in uroprosthetics. He's actually received numerous awards and is an active researcher and is actually currently researching the coronavirus. His professional expertise focuses on prostate cancer, male impotence, incontinence, gender dysphoria, and gender confirmation surgery. So I'm really excited to have him on the show today. We're going to talk about prostate-specific antigen, also known as PSA, and we're going to talk about that and how it relates to prostate cancer. And we also discussed the controversy surrounding PSA. So I think today's going to be a really good episode, so stick around. Hi, John. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Cancer from A to Z podcast. How are you? I'm great, and good seeing you again, Rosalind, after all this time with the COVID. Yes, yes, same here. Good seeing you too. So I'm so happy that you're on the podcast today, and today we're going to talk about PSA and prostate cancer. But before we get into it, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into medicine and specifically how you chose to become a urologist? Oh, that's a, that's a long story. So we'll give you the short version. Well, first of all, I, uh, I'm in a three-man group right now in the downtown Los Angeles area. I finished my residency in Chicago, I went off in, uh, to Indiana University and in, in Indianapolis, and I did a fellowship in uh, Europrosthetics, and then took my first job out here in California about 26, almost 27 years ago. Built up my solo practice to a three-person practice right now, and we are basically covering most of the general aspects of urology. And so at this point in time, we also take care of a lot of patients who have prostate cancer. And part of it is also visiting them from the uh, standpoint of their risk factors and then blood tests that basically come from their primary doctors. As for me, I have been practicing my entire time in the uh, Southern California area. And I have uh, also been involved with the uh, politics of medicine. I'm uh, past president of my state medical association, and I'm also heavily involved in the national aspects of medicine from trying to get 
certain types of uh, programs that are approved, resolutions approved, and moving things through Washington, which is not easy. Mm, yeah, I can imagine that sometimes that cannot be easy. Is that through your national organization? That is correct. Oh, okay. So, wow, you've done quite a bit, quite a lot in Southern California the entire time. That's great. That's great. So no moving around for you too much. Not really. Good. And how did you choose to become a urologist? What was it about urology that kind of piqued your interest when you were in medical school? Actually, I was a, uh, I was in one of the uh, trauma surgery tracks that we had developed in our, at our hospital. And what happened basically was I realized the lifestyle and the type of patients we have, which are people who don't really do well, was not necessarily the line of business that I wanted. And what I ended up doing was basically, since I had spent time with our, our urologic team, I simply interviewed and asked them if I would be able to join their team. Of course, everyone knows how the uh, interview, the match, and everything goes. That was a long process, but still made it. And that's how I got into urology. It's a hybrid of surgery and medicine is the way I kind of look at it. A lot of people don't recognize the surgical aspect when they come into our offices and they have to, we have to educate them and let them know that, no, we're really the surgeons. And just so happens we dabble in the, uh, in the aspect of medicine. Do you enjoy both aspects of that? I do. And one of the things I enjoy is being in my office because of the fact that, number one, we have a lot of mechanisms that we can now perform procedures that we used to have to do in a hospital or ambulatory setting. We can now actually do those in the office. So that basically uh, decreases the amount of, I think, the amount of money that's being spent on trying to get things done because we could do it, as I said, right there and in a uh, fast, but also in a safe manner. And then I also love teaching students. And it's kind of hard to get students into hospitals and surgery centers. And it's gotten even harder with the pandemic. So I've been able to still continue teaching. And we've been able to do that in our office setting. And so do you teach a lot of students? Prior to pandemic, I would say two a week uh, or two a month. And now we're anywhere from four to five and we're finding places and we're squeezing them in. And we're doing the best we can to make sure that they get some exposure and the best education we can give them. And you mentioned that you're doing a lot of these procedures in the office. Like what kind of procedures? So great, uh, great question. And so basically, we, we've always been doing a lot of the prostate biopsies in our office. Now, historically, when I was actually a resident, those were things that we would usually do in a more in a more advanced setting, we didn't have the equipment or the technology to be able to do things in a uh, ultrasound guided fashion. When the ultrasound first came out, we actually had to have these people uh, go into the radiology department because the machines were monstrosities, and you had to have a, a radiologist in the room with you. And then it took it took half hour to forty five minutes to do a prostate biopsy. Now we have the small portable type ultrasound devices that are even handheld. We can do biopsies in almost any location that we are where, where we're practicing, and we're able to then basically get a good, clear image of what the prostate looks like. We're able to then process the uh, the tissue and make sure that everything is in in an orderly fashion. There are several other procedures that we're now doing in the office, including for benign prostatic issues, things like a Eurolift and things like Resume. These uh, procedures used to be done 
in an old fashioned way where we would have to actually trim out the prostate and take them to the operating room. Historically, they were in the hospital for several days. Then it became more outpatient. And now we're even doing some of these procedures in the office. So that's where the technology and advancements of medicine are leading our, our specialty. Yeah, so that that's probably a lot more convenient for the patients and easier and, and probably cheaper as well, correct? Far less expensive, and it's a lot easier for the patient to maneuver. They don't have to take a whole day off from work. They don't have to rely on other people to pick them up and drop them off. Most of these procedures, as I said, are done under a local anesthetic, which allows them the opportunity, the ability to actually go home right from the office. And so as a urologist, what do you see the most often in terms of patients' illnesses and, or diagnoses? Is it prostate cancer or is it other things? Well, I'd say it's a lot of other things. And I, but how the, the two things that we see the most in terms of the uh, diagnoses coming into the office, and these are usually my first two lectures for every group of students that come in, we see elevated PSA and we see microscopic hematuria. And those are the two diagnoses. I would say that that represents over 40% of the patients that come in on an annual basis into, into our office coming from our referring physicians. So speaking of PSA, tell, me, tell us a little bit about PSA, which stands for prostate-specific antigen. Sure. So the PSA basically is actually an enzyme. And the enzyme that's produced, it's produced by some, the, uh, the prostatic cells. And the enzyme's job is really just a, a simple function of breaking down protective semen that's around the sperm cells. However, what happens is in, in men, they, they had studied what the actual number should be between men that were in the ages of 50 to about 80. And they found what we would call a normal or a regular plateau. And based on that, they're able to determine that if it's above a certain level, then you can look at it kind of like an actuarial type of process and determine what risk factor or risk number percent risk there is of actually having prostate cancer. If we were to do a biopsy, uh, that would be like a snapshot. And for those who are my age or older, a Polaroid snapshot of your life at that very moment. And that's really what the PSA uh, represents. And so from my understanding, it was actually started, I guess, the FDA approved PSA back in 1986 for men who had been treated for prostate cancer to monitor them, correct? And one of the things that the PSA then did is they basically had identified not just the, the absolute number, but they looked at patients who were age-specific and even cultural and, and racially, they started to look at what would be normal parameters for certain groups. And what we're at today right now is we're at a place where we can identify at an earlier time what the, the, uh, the individual who might have prostate cancer based on which category they fit into. So that's, that's where the, the finesse has come into. It's just not the, P, the absolute value of the PSA, but the absolute value based on age. You can have some of the components or breakdown components of the PSA where they break it down into their fractions and you could also look then at their, uh, their family history and you put all that together and it actually gives you a, a stratification. It puts you into just like a, if you're going in and getting a, a health exam and you wanted to get life insurance, you have this insurance agent coming up with some values. Well, the same thing happens with PSA. We could come up with certain values as well in terms of what your risk would be 
for prostate cancer. Right. And so other things such as total PSA and PSA density, do you order those as well or look at that as well? Oh, absolutely. The total PSA is the most common one. And then you have free PSA. And if you take the PSA, we do PSA densities on almost all of our patients who undergo a biopsy because they're undergoing a prostate ultrasound. And these are, these again are tools. So I I tell everybody that these are not absolutes. This is not going to tell you you do or don't have anything. It simply is another tool to either subtract the risk or add to the risk that you might or might not have prostate cancer. And yeah, as radiation oncologists, we pay attention to the total PSA, free PSA, PSA velocity. It's also important for us as well. So it's been very instrumental in in men in terms of screening them for prostate cancer. However, there was a little bit of controversy several years ago regarding PSA and whether physicians should be actually ordering PSAs on any patient in terms of screening them for prostate cancer. And that came from the United States Preventive Services Task Force. I think that was back in 2012, if I remember correctly. What did you think of that recommendation back then? So the original recommendation was actually before that, around 2009, the updated task force, which still was not that friendly, was 2012. And one of the things I personally did and many others, we went on a national campaign and started lecturing to many organizations at their annual conventions and trying to keep them abreast of what the actual information that they're looking at. There is a there could be a disconnect sometimes. Again, as I said, a lot of people may have looked at the PSA as a, a very simple screening test. And yes, there are a lot of potential risks associated with that, including our biopsies. And the what finally came out of that task force was were further tasks for task force outside of the US preventive. And they came up with what I would consider uh, some pretty good uh, guidelines that are being used and and have been actually verified in most in many other European and Scandinavian, especially Scandinavian countries, where they also have a high rate of prostate cancer. And I I was on I went on that on the campaign against the U.S. Task Force for the purpose of of trying to educate people because when I was a resident in urology. The, the PSA was just being utilized. So it had just been developed and just came out. So prior to that, we only used our finger as our main source of obtaining the risk factor for prostate cancer. And most patients we identified back in the 80s and early 90s were already progressive in terms of their disease. That means that they were probably not going to get cured. And as radiation oncologists, you probably know that they were still using cobalt back in the day. So even the treatment had its potential side effects, including including causing other cancers. So one of the things that people didn't realize is that many urology departments in the across the country actually had, and it's sad to say, prostate cancer clinics that were specifically for our cancer, prostate cancer patients. Now, you have to think about that for a second. If you can specific, specifically have one day a month or two days a month 
only for prostate cancer patients. That meant you had a large volume of prostate cancer patients. The only reason you'd need to have these clinics is actually to continue and administer medications that were used for patients who were already progressed in their disease, meaning the chances of them surviving and, and living past the cancer were pretty slim. That, that meant and what we're looking at now is that most of our patients are outliving their cancer and they die of other causes, such as heart disease, et cetera. So that was one of the, the things that I was basically trying to educate people on is trying to find those people who have a risk that would lead them to an earlier death. Now, on the flip side, I also went out and I was a very strong supporter of one of the recommendations that came out of the task force, and that is to screen our elderly patients in their 80s plus, I think would be that would, that would not necessarily be a very fruitful event. And there are exceptions to every rule. So, for example, if you have a, a, a person who has longevity in their family, 90s to 100-year-old, well, that's a, that's a different story. On the other hand, if you have somebody that is a frail nursing home patient in their 80s who's either in a wheelchair or can't even get out of bed, I don't think that screening that individual for prostate cancer would be a fruitful event. Right, right. And so... With those, I guess that recommendation, as you mentioned, was before it started kind of before 2012. And now it's actually changed a little bit. What did you see at the time that that initial recommendation came out? Were you seeing higher stage cancers? Were you seeing more metastatic disease coming through your clinics? So at, prior to the recommendations or, 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 or the whole, because actually when they first made the recommendation to, to pull back, they, a lot of people actually did. And when we, we, what we saw at what we saw in our clinic, and I think what you saw in the data from at least many of the urologic universities where they were publishing their information, you actually, we saw that there was, we were starting to see a higher amount of people coming in again with what we would call higher grade cancers. And those are harder to treat. Now what we're seeing with, again, the change in the protocols, we're starting to again, see people who have lower grade cancers that not all of them need to have a, a necessarily an, a, any kind of treatment. We can actually put them into what we call an active surveillance protocol Again, all risk factors have to be taken in. And age is a risk factor. So the younger you are, obviously, the higher risk you have of the cancer spreading if you don't do something. Right. And that's been kind of this ongoing. Would you say there's an ongoing controversy still surrounding PSA and ordering it? There, I think there still is, and you have some pushback, especially from some insurance companies and even Medicare. If it's not if it's not ordered or built or documented properly, you could actually have some pushback from them in terms of paying for the actual test, and that's a deterrent to many patients. And especially when you're dealing with an our patient population, a large percentage of them could barely afford their rent. I mean, for goodness sake, if you're paying attention at all to what's happening on right now in the news with real estate and homelessness, you, you recognize that in Southern California, the price of, of uh, the cost of, uh, of your living situation has going, going up, but not necessarily the cost of, or the, the reimbursement for your work. 
So we are having patients who have to actually make these kind of decisions themselves. Do I pay for the test or do I pay for my rent and food? So it's a very important situation to document properly and to make sure that we advocate for their, for their health. Mm-hmm. And so, and I don't mean to kind of be on this point for, for a really long time, but I just find it fascinating a little bit that the recommendation that came out by the task force was based on two studies, right? The PLCO, I believe it was, as well as the other one from, from Europe. And, yeah. And looking at, you know, screening, prostate cancer screening. And those two trials have been significantly criticized. The first one for, in terms of the PLCO, and I think I'm, I'm saying it correctly, but they were looking at men who were screened for PSA versus men who were not screened for PSA. But what they found is that in the control group, a lot of those patients were actually screened. And so it was, I guess, the trials kind of considered a screening versus screening trial when that's not actually what they were set out to do. And then the second one from Europe was, you know, that one's been criticized as well for not a long enough follow-up to actually see the benefit of PSA screening. And so I know that the task force has kind of changed their recommendation now, but the current recommendation, I think, still says that above age 70, you really shouldn't be checking PSA. The current task force is talking about men over 70. And I think when you look at what most of the other organizations are advocating, such as American Urologic Association, American Cancer Society, etc., we, we've come up with a compromise to that. So obviously, when we come up with our compromise, we're looking at things that look at statistics for, uh, for longevity of life. So in the United States, with, uh, our, when we're looking at men over 75, we would still screen somebody under 75 and even into their 70s if they had a, uh, a relatively good and healthy uh, lifestyle with a with minimal comorbidities that could potentially be significant and actually shorten their life at that point. On the other hand, the the protocols also have to look at the opposite direction because they're talking about screening people, even ap- not screening people in their fifties. But we have to take into consideration a the risk factors associated with these people that might encourage us or lead us to screening earlier than 55 or 50 even. And that again includes family history. What is your what is your racial background? Do you have a nowadays where that you're you're finding people going in for genetic testing? And if you're looking at the BRAs, uh, if you have a BRA that's positive, then those also put you at higher risk for developing a prostate cancer or worse, a, a more aggressive type of prostate cancer. So those are the, those all those factors now have to be t- taken into consideration and juggled. So if you look at the guidelines strictly at a as this is how it has to be done, then you're going to be making a lot of mistakes. If you actually look at the guidelines as a a reference point, and then taking into the consideration the other components we talked about, then I think you're going to be able to screen efficiently 
you'll be able to weed out the patients who shouldn't necessarily undergo a biopsy. And then those that should go, you, you can have a little bit more vigorous conversation with them because prostate biopsies are not pleasant and most men are going to try and avoid it any way they can. Right, exactly. And so not every prostate cancer is going to have a PSA that's significantly elevated as well. So if you have a gentleman who comes into your office and let's say their PSA is, you know, maybe the year before it was two and, and now it's uh, 3.5 and you do a digital rectal examination and you don't really feel any nodules or anything else that's suspicious, how do you make that determination in terms of whether this particular person should have a prostate biopsy versus maybe not having one done at that time? Sure. So I, if you, there are many different, if you want to call it recipes, and that's how I explain things to patients because they, they all come in with one thing they heard or read or saw. And then we have the other things that are out there. So I tell them that, well, that's, that is one recipe, just like you have recipes to make chocolate chip cookies. There are many different ways to do that. In this case, basically what we would be looking at is the person's age. What kind of risk factors do you have associated with that? So if you're younger and you have a, uh, if you have other risk uh, risk factors that add up and, and make it so that there might be a risk, a cancer associated here, then we might, we might try and convince you to go ahead with the biopsy earlier, even though the PSA itself may not be at, at a at a higher uh, a high absolute level of of greater than four, and an example would be a man of fifty years of age who maybe had a year ago a PSA of one, and you're describing now a PSA of three point five, and it's and it was verified to be that. There there's a huge change there. Another factor that you could put into consideration is actually doing a rectal examination, although those are. Very few people like to have those done and very few people now are doing those. But if you felt a lump or a nodule, well, that's a really bad sign, just like a breast exam. And that's how I teach students. I tell people, look, the rectal exam is like, we look at the prostate the same as the breast in many respects. The rectal exam is just there to feel for lumps and bumps, just like you're doing a breast exam, you're feeling for lumps and bumps. The PSA, I, I, I compare it to what the mammogram is supposed to do. The mammogram doesn't tell you you do or don't have breast cancer. The mammogram just simply states that you're at higher risk, that there's something there that looks abnormal. And that's what the PSA would tell us. So if you have a PSA that's changing rapidly, especially if it's doubling in, in terms of the, the number, if it's going from two to four, that's not a good sign. So those are also factors that I would try and put into place. Now, Nowadays, that the MRI has become a little bit easier and faster to do for those people still on the fence and really don't want to have another biopsy. These are people we could go ahead and sometimes convince by or or they can convince me by getting the MRI. And if the MRI shows that there is a suspicious lesion, we have a better chance of them willing to go through the biopsy and maybe even finding a cancer that we can cure. Whereas if they have a a, a symptom of the signs on their MRI that don't show a high risk for prostate cancer, we would just keep them in our uh, active surveillance kind of mode and just keep them close instead of putting them into a regular once a year visit. We might keep them in and bring them in close uh, on a more frequent or closer, you know, keep, keep us close to the heart, so to speak. 
Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it seems as though the MRIs of the prostate are really helping in terms of, you know, detecting these, these lesions. What about MRIs that are used? So if you have something seen on the MRI, then using that MRI for, to help with biopsy. The MRI can also be used for biopsy acquisition too. Now, not everyone can do that. Not every center is able to. There is a software and it's very expensive and in many cases can be as expensive as a small house. So the there, there are what we call workarounds where it, you can actually work with your radiologist and they can give you a, a, a game plan and actually point out and print out a map of where you should be going with your, uh, your regular standard ultrasound guided biopsies. So those centers that actually have what they call an MRI guided biopsy, those places can have a little bit more accuracy in terms of obtaining the specimen. The actual percentage of change, though, in terms of finding the tumor is going to be very, uh, it's, it's not that significant. The only time it comes into play is when a person has had an elevated PSA and you've had a biopsy or two in the past that were negative or not quite positive, such as something we call atypical small cell proliferation. Those are areas that can become precancerous or can be considered precancerous, in which case a an MRI-guided biopsy may be in their best interest, and we may need to refer them to one of those centers. But they're not easy to get to, and they're not always covered, so they're very expensive. Mm, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I'm seeing quite a few in terms of urologists using them and doing MRI fusion biopsies. Going back to PSA a little bit, and I'd like to talk about PSA and BPH, benign prostatic hypertrophy. How do you, what's in terms of the PSA, how elevated can the, B, can the PSA be just from the fact that the, the prostate gland is enlarged? So the prostate itself, a lot of studies have shown that the prostate itself, as it gets larger, can also produce more of the enzyme or the, what we call the PSA, prostate-specific antigen. So cancer cells, which are moving, they're, they're like little energizer bunnies just moving around, growing, and et cetera. And what they're doing is they're creating elevated levels of PSA, so like their carbon footprint. Be a benign prostatic hyperplasia, as the prostate grows, it can also... Create, raise that level as well. It's, it's just a sheer nature. Now, the problem is you can't tell from the PSA, is it benign or is it a malignant cell? And that's where the biopsy comes into play. At least we can't tell at this point in time. Mm-hmm. And so with PSA, let's say you have a gentleman who, who has prostate cancer and they decide that they want to have a prostatectomy. The PSA should come down very quickly after surgery. Oh, absolutely. So when you're considering the prostate itself as the, as the source, that cancer being the, the actual generator, and the prostate itself being the source of the PSA, the assumption now made is that if the cancer is contained and it's not anywhere outside, when you take that prostate out, 
you've removed that generator, that source, so there shouldn't be any more PSA detectable. That being said, we still need to closely monitor the individual after prostatectomy or any treatment, radiation as well, to see if that level starts going up, which could suggest that there were cancer cells that were already outside of that contained wall. Right. Right. And I always talk about that with my patients in terms of the difference between surgery and radiation and how quickly that PSA will decrease. Because with radiation, it can be a little bit longer for the PSA to reach a really low value. And it can take months and months for that to happen because those cells essentially are continuing to die off. And so with surgery, the PSA should essentially be undetectable and stay there. And if you start to see a rise, then that's when you become slightly concerned or if it doesn't ever get to undetectable levels. If it doesn't get to undetectable levels, then, and and that's something you should act on quickly. And I agree that that's very important to look at that. And one of the things we can do, we could still salvage the situation. It's not over yet because if we've had the prostatectomy and we don't go to a, an undetectable level, then we could send them for a, a, a secondary treatment with radiation oncology. And they can, and a term that has been used is to sterilize the surgical field or basically knock out any of the cells that, that were left behind. And again, when you're doing a surgery, you can't see the cells because they're microscopic. So we are not, we don't have that kind of a surgical instrument that allows us to see the cellular level of the tissue we're removing. Right, right. And the same is true for radiation because I get asked pretty frequently as someone's going through their radiation treatments, can you see the cancer? And our imaging is sophisticated, but not down to microscopic levels. And so I, really try to reassure the patients that, no, I can't actually see the microscopic cancer cells, but the imaging that we do acquire on the linear accelerator is very sophisticated, and it is essentially showing me the prostate gland when it's intact, the bladder, the rectum, and, you know, other structures within the pelvis. And so I know that the radiation is going where it's supposed to go based on those images and being able to see the target. But yeah, just like with radiation therapy, we can't see the actual microscopic cancer cells. So after surgery, are you, you check the PSA every three months? So for the first two years, uh, we would be checking the PSA usually every three to four months. If they are able to actually keep at a nice plateau, then the recommendations are for you to let them graduate, so to speak, to every six months. Now, at that point, you can do that for a couple of years and, and maybe graduate back to one year. I'm not a fan of that. I recommend that we see you every, two, every six months, twice a year. And that way, if anything should change, we can catch it early. The earlier we catch things, the better chance we have of eradicating anything else that's popping up. Right, right. Yeah, I remember back in training, men who had a prostatectomy and their PSA would start to rise. Back then when I was in training, they would send the patient for radiation therapy when that PSA got to like around eight. 
sometimes 10. And we don't do that anymore. Of course, the urologists now send the patient essentially very, very early. If that PSA is is detectable, um, I'm seeing those patients. And so are other radiation oncologists. So in terms of the PSA, is there any new research that's coming out in terms of PSA? Anything else besides some of the things that we order right now, like total PSA and free PSA? At this point in time, there there isn't anything new on the horizon. You are having researchers trying to identify more of the fragments or components. They have things called 4K scores, et cetera. These, again, are, are fragments or components of PSA and other enzymes around. Unfortunately, I don't think we've come up with anything that has really surpassed the PSA for its simplicity and its ease of obtaining that. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's very easy. Yeah. So it's a blood test. So it's extreme. Yeah, it's extremely easy to do. Besides prostate cancer, what are some of the other things that can cause a PSA to be elevated? That's, uh, That's actually a great and important question. So other factors that need to be taken into consideration Person, a person who has had some sort of other traumatic or manipulative process. So an aggressive rectal exam sometimes can cause the PSA to go up. Sexual intercourse can cause the PSA to go up. And I tell people, however, it's not going to go up two or three times uh, the value. It, it can go up a bit, but it won't go up that fast or that high. Inflammation or infection of the prostate can actually cause the PSA to go up. If a person had a problem where they couldn't urinate, we call that urinary retention, and they had a catheter or they ended up having some sort of a, a, a scope placed into the urethra, that can traumatize the prostate as it passes through it, and, and it can cause the PSA to go up. Believe it or not, a, a person who may be suffering from a hemorrhoidal flare-up or even an anal fissure can cause PSA to go up. So these are the factors. A urinary tract infection can cause PSA to go up. So these are the factors that need to be looked at when you're actually doing your PSA test and when you're evaluating the patient for what it might or might not be in terms of the cause of PSA to go up. Mm-hmm. And so if do you tell your patients, you know, should that they should abstain from intercourse, you know, by what, 24 hours, 48 hours, if they're going to have a PSA done? Good question. And we don't tell everybody to do that. Because not everyone's PSA is going to be elevated, it's a, actually a small fraction of uh, patients who come in that have a rise in their PSA. I do tell people who, are, who do have elevated PSAs that we've been monitoring or we've evaluated with either biopsy in the past, that if we've noticed their PSA goes up, especially after intercourse, I do ask them to abstain from that as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. And any other areas in terms of PSA or anything else that we haven't talked about that you'd like to let us know in terms of PSA and and prostate cancer? Other than we shouldn't be afraid of going in for the screening test. One of the things that we do as part of the protocols, as part of the the task force and the, the new protocols is we actually ask permission 
So when you're coming in the office, we're going to ask you, do you mind if I take a PSA level? Do you mind if I check your prostate today? Now, here's the best part. A lot of the a lot of married couples will come in together. And assuming the patient allows their wife to stay in, I love the fact that they stay in. And, and for two reasons. One is that means that they have a good relationship. And secondly, the wife usually doesn't let them avoid the rectal examination, which I do think is an important component because there are people who have PSAs that are normal that could have a lump on their prostate and it can still be cancer. Right. And so are you seeing patients who actually say, no, I don't want my PSA checked? I don't we want do. To- mm-hmm. We do. We do see people. And for many reasons, uh, the most being the fact that they might be that, that they might be afraid of the sexual ramifications, the, the loss of sexual potency or things that may take place as a result of treatments. And that's basically the, the whole, that, that would be the biggest issue or biggest fear factor. Others are just afraid of the fact that they were talking about a biopsy and they're just afraid of the whole of going and having a biopsy done. But the majority of people who say no are saying no because they, they don't want, they have already told you they're not going to undergo treatment even if they had it. Right, right. And you brought up something interesting, and I, I want to go back to that, what you just said. So when men who have, don't have an elevated PSA, they can still have cancer. Is that a result of the cells sometimes being, you know, de-differentiated, or is that a quantity aspect? Most of the time, what's en- what ends up happening is that the cells have, it's either such a, a high-grade type of tumor that the cells no longer produce P- the, the enzyme. And in rare cases, it's a different type of a cellular uh, component where it wasn't keeping up with the progression of, uh, of, of growth. So when, when the tumor becomes bigger and you can feel it, it usually means it's, it's not as easy to fix or cure. So that's why when we, we're always hoping that most people that we find cancer on, we're finding cancer on the PSA alone. We, and we basically call that a, the chemical a positivity. So they actually are, they, when, when you look at how we actually stage that, when we see, the, when we see it only on a blood test level, that's, that is, gives them a little bit better chance than if we found it both on a blood test and finger exam. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Urologists and radiation oncologists, we work pretty closely together. Of course, you know, urologists are doing prostatectomies and radiation oncologists are are treating with either brachytherapy or external beam radiation therapy. And so do you how do you feel about the relationship between urologists and radiation oncologists when it comes to treating prostate cancer? Because they're they're maybe a couple of areas that we maybe differ on a little bit. So in terms of, let's say, high, high Gleason score, Gleason 8, 9, or 10, and, and maybe taking those patients to, to surgery versus sending those patients to radiation oncology. So I'm, I guess what I'm asking is, what, what's your relationship like with your, the radiation oncologist that you work with? Well, my relation, I feel my relationship is actually a working relationship with, with mutual respect. And here's the reason why. When I'm presenting the treatment options to the patient, I'm presenting them with the honesty behind what may or may not happen. And there are going to be, so if I was able to get the patient to do the biopsy, and let's say they have a high-grade cancer, and you basically, you, you and I might agree that they would benefit from surgery if they choose not to. 
even after their second opinion with the radiation oncologist, then I believe we need to go ahead and do the best we can with what we have. If the patient sees the radiation oncologist and then they have a second thought and they said, listen, I, I decided to have surgery, well, that's a different story. Then we, we would move forward. And in terms of the, if a person stays with the radiation treatment and we need to maybe go ahead and give them neoadjunctive or adjunctive hormonal therapy, then I actually rely on the radiation oncologist to give me the time frame as to what they think is best because I think the data from the radiation oncology departments are better than the ones coming out of the urology data for patients that are to be treated long-term, to be long, considered long-term survivors with radiation therapy and high-grade high cancers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and yeah, the, I would say, I would agree that the literature in terms of radiation oncology, we've looked at that extensively in terms of intermediate risk prostate cancer patients, as well as high risk and, and how long they should be on the hormonal therapy and where the, the time frame keeps decreasing, which is good because having someone on medication such as Lupron, is, it, it has its, its own side effects and, and quality of life issues can arise from that. So I agree with you. I think the, the relationship between urologists and radiation oncologists is extremely important. I know I rely on, on physicians such as you to help me take care of these patients. I know, I guess, historically, there's been some, you know, where patients had maybe had problems in the past with radiation therapy when the technology was a little bit older and the urologist had to take care of <laughs> take care of some of those radiation-related side effects. But I think hopefully that that's decreasing now with the advancement in our technology and the ability to, you know, better see our target and stay off of the of the normal tissue. It's a very important relationship. And I think, yeah, urologists and radiation oncologists can can work together to offer the patient what's what's best for that particular patient, then it's a win-win for, for everyone. But this has been fantastic. I am so happy that we were able to to do this and and talk about PSA and and prostate cancer and and really kind of drill down on PSA because I know patients come into my clinic and sometimes they know a lot about PSA and a, and a lot of times they don't. So this was this was fantastic information, John. So John, where can people find you? Website, office, where can people find you? Sure. Thanks for asking. We are uh, we're at the uh, Urology Group of Southern California, and you could you could find us on online u uh, ugofsc dot com. You can our our main office is on the in the downtown Los Angeles area. Our number is two one three nine seven seven one one seven six. We also have uh, branches in Glendale as well as Burbank area. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you again. Thank you so much for for doing this today. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed today's episode with Dr. Kowalczyk. I know PSA can be a really complicated subject, so I hope we were able to actually talk about it in a way that made a lot of sense. And remember, the PSA is a very simple blood test. So if you have any additional questions regarding PSA, make sure you speak with your healthcare professional. And if you would like to do some additional reading on PSA, please check out the show notes. So again, I am so happy that you joined me today and I look forward to our next episode. Until then, be well.
Thank you for listening to the Cancer from A to Z podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would love it if you subscribed and left a review. And if you know anyone who could benefit from this information, please share the podcast with them. Until next time, I am your host, Dr. Rosalind Morell.